Good morning, and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're very glad you're here. I would like to extend a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. And it is in the spirit of that heritage that I ask you to greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you please say the words with me by which we light our chalice? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning is from Robert French Levins. Holy and beautiful the custom which brings us together in the presence of the Most High to face our ideals, to remember our loved ones in absence, to give thanks, to make confession, to offer forgiveness, to be enlightened, and to be strengthened. Through this quiet hour breathes the worship of ages, the cathedral music of history. Three unseen guests attend, faith, hope, and love. Let all our hearts prepare them place. What holds us together when we all have roots in Christianity or Judaism, Buddhism, earth-centered traditions, agnostic humanism? We come from many different places, and yet we all call ourselves Unitarian Universalists. What holds us together? One of the things is our mission, and we say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. This morning we have the pleasure of receiving new members. I wanted to put it before the children's time so that the children could see folks join our church and so that our new members' families could join them on stage because sometimes we have new kids here too. Um, more and more lately. So would those who have joined our church recently please um, come forward. Our reading this morning is from Olympia Brown. Call this great lesson. We can never make the world safe by fighting. Every nation must learn that the people of all nations are children of God and must share the wealth of the world. You may say this is impracticable, far away, can never be accomplished, but it is the work we are appointed to do. Sometime, somehow, somewhere, we must ever teach this great lesson. Let us continue our meditation with the Buddhist loving kindness meditation or the metta meditation. We say this through three times, the first time we say it for ourselves. I'll say a line and you say it after me, should you choose to. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. 
Second time we think of someone we love and say it for them. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. The third time as a spiritual challenge, we say this for someone against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. May it be so. I've done a couple of sermons in the two years that I've been here on Unitarian history. And now I'm going to talk about universalist history, a little slice of it in the person of a woman named Olympia Brown, who was the first woman ordained by an entire denomination rather than just a single congregation. The Universalists were a Christian or are a Christian denomination of people who believe in the divinity of Jesus, which uh, means they're Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and uh, as as opposed to Unitarian, one God. So this is a Trinitarian denomination that believes in the divinity of Jesus and that God is so loving that God would not send anybody to hell. And universalist means someone who believes in universal salvation. So that's what the second half of our denomination's name means. And we got two names when the Unitarians and the Universalists merged in 1961. So... That was like yesterday in church history time. This is a story of a woman whose face you can see on the front of your bulletin. She was born without a lot of patience and she lost the rest of it quickly. (laughs) This is the story of a woman who got a lot done. The story of a person who like all of us, has good times and bad times. This is the story of a woman who was living her soul as hard as she could. And it's the story of how, one way, that social justice gets done. The first, the oldest of four children, Olympia Brown was born in 1835 to pioneer parents in Michigan. This was still when they had pioneers in Michigan. And they were universalists, so universalist pioneer parents um, in 1835. Her dad built a schoolhouse for the four kids on the farm. So Olympia Brown started her education at the schoolhouse that her father built on the farm. And after that, she went to Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. So um, at Antioch, she studied uh, English and became radicalized. Her English teacher said, 
we are going to have uh, speeches given before the class. Well, all the young men will deliver their speeches, and all the young women will just hand in their manuscripts. Because it was thought at the time that young women could not speak in public, and in fact, in many places, it was against the law for young women to speak in public in mixed groups. So they could speak if only women were in the audience, but not if there were any men. I don't know what they thought it would do to the women or the men to hear the woman speak, but it was not allowed. Um, She stood up and gave her speech with her manuscript rolled up in her hand. Um, So she had something to prove. And she started with her friends to wear the um, Bloomer costume, named after Amelia Bloomer. It was a costume that was comfortable. They had... uh, you know, bloomer pants, which showed uh, the woman's ankle, which caused a lot of excitement in the town of Yellow Springs. But bloomers yet let the young women move freely, let them run and let them climb stairs quickly. They didn't have to hobble in long, uh, tight skirts or in long um, hoop skirts. They didn't have to uh, worry about their clothes getting dirty or picking up their skirts when they crossed a muddy street. They just ran around in this bloomer costume. And most of the other students at Yellow Springs ridiculed these young women. Um, There was no physical education for the young women, so they used to take long walks, uh, Olympia and her friends, into the town of Yellow Springs for exercise. And when it got back to the president of Antioch, that these young women had been running in the streets of Yellow Springs and laughing out loud, um, having fun, being noisy. He was horrified, and he sent for a chaperone from um, the East Coast for these students. Now, these students realized, knew, that no chaperone had ever been asked for the men. And so they were upset, and this poor chaperone came all the way to Ohio, to the wilds of Ohio, and she was teased mercilessly um, in German. She lasted a week. Olympia Brown and the other students in Bloomers invited Antoinette Brown to come speak. Antoinette Brown was one of the first female ministers to be ordained. She was ordained just by a local congregation, a congregationalist minister, Antoinette Brown. And Olympia writes that this was the first time she had ever heard a woman preach. And the sense of victory lifted me up. I felt as though the kingdom of heaven were at hand. So she decided she would like to be a minister too, like Antoinette Brown, no relation. And she set about finding a seminary that would accept her. It was a radical thing for a seminary to do, to accept a female student. Antoinette Brown had gone to Oberlin Seminary after graduating from Oberlin College. Um, Olympia Brown 
applied to many different seminaries. One of the responses she got was from Meadville Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, which in 1861 sent her this response. Um, We are sorry to keep you waiting for a reply. Mr. Stearns wrote, Were it my private concern, I should say at once, come, I have no prejudice against a woman studying anything she can or against a woman speaking in public. From from what I've heard of you, I'd be glad to have you for a pupil and more like you, but I have no right to commit the institution to a new course of action. I can see writing a letter like that. Maybe he just didn't have the power to commit the institution to a new course of action. Somebody did but they chose not to. I have to say that in the early 80s when I graduated from seminary and I was um, looking for a job as a preaching major, everybody that I interviewed with said, we would like you to do um, our education program. And I said, I don't know anything about that. I know about preaching. And the minister would say, but that's what I do. And I would say... Yes. And then they would say to me, if it were just up to us, we would have you come, but our congregation is just not ready for a woman. So this is a traditional stock response at the beginning of social change. I don't have any problem with gay people, but I think my neighbors might have a problem. I don't have any problem, whatever, fill in the blank. But the people I'm responsible for would have a problem, so we're just not ready yet. Finally, Olympia Brown received a letter from Ebenezer Fisher, president of the Canton Universalist Divinity School at St. Lawrence University, advising her to study Greek there and board with a private family. He confirmed September 25th, 1861, as the beginning of her course of study, This was one of only three theological seminaries in the United States that would admit women at all. At the end of his letter, he says, It is perhaps proper that I should say you may have some prejudices to encounter in the institution from students and also in the community here. Nothing very mighty or serious, I trust. The faculty will receive and treat you precisely as they would any other student. My own judgment is that it is not expedient for women to become preachers. But I consider it purely a question of experience and not at all of right. The right I cannot question. The other matter of expedience or duty I cannot decide for you. I'm willing to leave it between you and the great head of the church. For those of you who may be confused by that, he meant God. (laughs) Not the president of the denomination. If you feel, he continues, as if God has called you to preach the everlasting gospel, you shall receive from me no hindrance, but rather every aid in my power. I think he's a hero. Quite amazing for a man in 1861. I heard much the same thing from students, fellow students at the Princeton Theological Seminary when I was studying there. They would say, I'm so concerned about your feeling that you have a call from God to preach. I wonder if you can tell me how you experienced this call. 
And what makes you think you could be a preacher? I'm wondering if you could tell me what scriptures you find that justify your presence here. And after having that conversation, oh, I don't know, maybe once, (laughs) I realized that women's students were asked to justify our presence daily and that male students never were. Nobody would say, tell me, why do you think you have a call to the ministry? Until they were just about ready to be ordained. But really, a lot of the men, through no fault of their own, had very little idea why they were there. Um, Some of the older ones had come to avoid the draft. Some of them had come because they just didn't know what else they wanted to do with their lives. And some had come because they had beautiful voices. And someone had said, here's a you should be a preacher. Here's an application to the seminary. I'll help you fill it out. Your voice is so beautiful. You'd make a great minister. Many of them did have a great call to the ministry and I'm not judging who did or who didn't, but I just heard this from their own voice, their own mouths. I don't really know why I'm here. I hope I'm doing the right thing. Whereas if you were a woman and you were in seminary, you were there because you had justified yourself every single step of the way. And you were, tough in order to be there. There was no one confused and female there. Olympia Brown, and I don't know what it is like in seminary these days. I think it's much different because um, it's very common for women to be seminary students. And maybe there are some who go because they don't know what else to do, but it was not true in 1982. No woman at the time the books say, was ordained by more than one church at a time. So there was no woman who was ordained by a whole denomination. And Olympia Brown was determined that this was a step that she needed to take in order for women to advance in their stature in society, in their sense of authority and power. And so she um, applied. When the Northern Association of Universalists were in session... She successfully presented her case for ordination, and she was ordained. We just had an ordination here Friday night. Were any of you all here? It was, fun. It was a good service and a fun party. And now we are a two-minister church, and the Reverend Marisol Caballero is our assistant minister with a portfolio for religious education. We're very, very proud to have her. So when Olympia Brown had her ordination ceremony in 1863, Dr. Ebenezer Fisher, who had had such doubts about her coming to St. Lawrence, participated in the ceremony. He stood up beside her and participated in the ceremony. This is how social change happens, my friends. One person pushes, another person helps and uses his Privilege, whether it's male privilege, heterosexual privilege, white privilege, uh, the privilege of wealth, the privilege of position and power, whatever, this person uses their privilege to help social change happen. And later, Reverend Olympia Brown paid tribute to Dr. Fisher, saying, This was the first time that the Universalists, or indeed any denomination, had formally ordained a woman as preacher. They took that stand, a remarkable one for the day, which shows the courage of these men. 
So the way it works is that the ones without power have to push and push and push. And they have to be told that they are rude. Because pushing is rude. And usually it works best for social change if you have one group that is really pushy and kind of scary. And another group that is a little bit pushy and sweeter. And so it's like, you're going to deal either with us or you deal with them. So you have to demand and demand and push and push and bring it up at times that are not convenient. And you have to be told you're rude. And then you have to put up with people acting as if you're crazy or as if you're thoughtless or as if you're just banging your head against a wall. Oh, come on. This is never going to happen. Why are you even wasting your time on it? Again, this is not really the fault of the collective in that this is how we are all trained to deal. We just like to keep things the same if it's not an issue that directly makes us have, have pain. We would like for everybody to just kind of sit down, shut up, get along, be sweet, deal with it. So, when you're out of line and when you're calling for justice you know that the first thing they do, they being the collective, is ignore you. So you have to get louder, you have to push, you have to make noise, you have to be unpleasant. They ignore you. And when that doesn't work, and when you add a little power, when you get some allies who are using their privilege to help you, then they, the collective, begin to ridicule you. They make fun of your clothes, or they tell you you're ugly, or they say your voice is strange, or that you don't really know what you're doing, or they just ridicule you. And next, when you have more people gathered to your side, instead of ignoring you or ridiculing you, they start fighting you. So it's good. When people start actually fighting you, you know you've really started making an impression. And when you prevail... If, by some grace of the gods and the Supreme Court justices, they decide that that same-sex marriage is um, constitutional and the way things should go, the equal rights for everyone, then the collective will say, oh yeah, we, we were on their side all the time. Once you prevail, everybody is like, oh yeah, secretly I was for them. In fact, you remember that I spoke out, you know, I spoke out that one time. I was, I was down at the demonstration. Well, I was, you know, walking through the, the square at the time that they were de- demonstrating. I was for it. In fact, it was kind of my idea. I mean, I put something on Facebook and said... Someone with privilege has to have the courage to stand up, to stand with those asking for justice if justice is to be done. And every now and then in our lives, we gather what privilege we have as Unitarian Universalists and we stand with the powerless and we stand and use our privilege to make a wall against the ridicule, to make a wall against the um, fight to fight as allies on the side of love. So the Universalists ordained Olympia Brown in 1863. 
The Presbyterians ordained their first woman in 1955. Episcopalians, 1973. And that was an illegal ordination. A bishop just got a wild hair and just ordained a bunch of women. We're still waiting on the Roman Catholics. We're still waiting on the denomination I grew up in, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Not yet. Not yet. In 1864, Olympia Brown was called to her first full-time parish ministry in Weymouth Landing, Massachusetts. She became active in the women's suffrage movement, palling around with Susan B. Anthony and Lucy Stone and other leaders. And she and the people in that first church loved each other and got along great. And then she went to her second call, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Man, that went badly. Badly. She had met and married her darling husband, John Henry Willis, in uh, their first congregation. And they married in 1873. And so... She wrote, I thought that with a husband so entirely in sympathy with my work, marriage could not interfere, but rather assist, and so it proved, for I could have married no better man. He shared in all my undertakings. She kept her maiden name with her husband's agreement, and it was a most felicitous marriage. And when he died unexpectedly 20 years later, she wrote, Endless sorrow has fallen upon my heart. He was one of the truest and best men that ever lived, firm in his religious convictions, loyal to every right principle, strictly honest and upright in his life, with an absolute sincerity of character, such as I've never seen in any other person. I don't have time to tell you the whole story of the Bridgeport Church. Suffice it to say that P.T. Barnum, who was in the church, thought she was great. But there was one guy that didn't like her. And he kept pecking, 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 pecking at her, she said, like a raucous crow. He pecked like a raucous crow for seven years before he ran her off and split the church. When there is one person, well, you know, first of all, everybody criticizes the minister. It's just like... um, a given, and it's okay. In fact, one of my dear friends wrote a lovely book called uh, 365 Ways to Criticize the Preacher. <laughs> and it's like a day book. It's a great story. <laughs> but when there's only one and everybody else is fine, if the other people don't address the raucous crow and say, listen, you're not just hurting the minister, you're hurting the whole church. Let's see if we can't live with this. Then, I mean, not that there aren't reasons to get rid of a minister. There are. And some churches just need to pull the plug on certain ministers. And that happens, as you know. But if there's one raucous crow that's making the minister's life a live in hell and everybody else just sort of ignores it, that is bad for the church. And that's what happened in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Even P.T. Barnum couldn't keep that from happening. So she and her husband moved to Racine, Wisconsin, 
where he published a newspaper and ran his own printing business. And Olympia Brown was pastor of the Good Shepherd Church in Racine. Right now in Racine, there's a wonderful UU church called the Olympia Brown Unitarian Universalist Congregation. And that's where she was. Her leadership perked up somewhat. They had a couple kids, and uh, ministry went well. Her kids became teachers. Henry was a professor of banking at Columbia University and key in writing the Federal Reserve Act. And Gwendolyn Willis taught classics at Bryn Mawr. When she was 52, Olympia Brown left the full-time ministry to work in the women's rights movement. I think that's probably where she got that face on her. Her daughter said she was troublesome, indomitable, cared little for society, paid no deference to wealth, represented an unfashionable church, and and was regarded as certain to be unsuccessful. Yet, she was the only woman of all the suffragists, the original ones, who lived long enough to cast a vote. June 1920, when she was 85, she marched to demonstrate at the Republican Convention in Chicago. She marched in front of the White House in the sleet and the rain where all those women chained themselves to the fence of the White House and were arrested. Olympia Brown in her 80s was there. My friends, she was not a sweet person. She was not a patient person. She was one of those people that was like, you deal with me, the sweet one, or you deal with her. And she helped get things done. She said, dear friends, stand by this faith. Work for it and sacrifice for it. There's nothing in all the world so important to you as to be loyal to this faith which has placed before you the loftiest ideal, which has comforted you in sorrow, strengthened you for the noble duty, and made the world beautiful for you. She was a preacher of universal salvation. She was a champion of women's rights. And the flame of her spirit still burns today. She is in our pantheon of Unitary Universalist saints. And any of you all have studied the lives of saints know that few of them were sweet. And so may her flame burn in us when it needs to during these days of great upheaval and change. May it be so. Will you please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. There is a line in the revised covenant of healthy relations that we're going to vote on at the congregational meeting next Sunday afternoon that says we will speak up when to remain silent would inhibit progress. I think Olympia Brown would deeply understand that line. And I think that she spoke up, keeping the other lines of our Healthy Relations Covenant in her heart, she didn't know it, but I think she was this way, that she would speak up with compassion and with respect 
It doesn't always have to be sweet or convenient, but it must be respectful and compassionate. Silence is sometimes the most hurtful thing that can be done. And so, my friends, let us look to our inner wisdom to teach us. Let us look to that spirit that is greater than any of us to teach us and guide us, the spirit of love and the spirit of truth. And may we be a blessing in this world as we move around in it for as long as we have. May it be so. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.